Good morning. Happy Monday. I have neuro coffee in hand and it is perfect. I had a great weekend. Um, got a really, really solid week coming up. So lots to look forward to here. Um, a little something different for today's Q&A. Eric and I, Eric from iVest, and I were uh, working on some uh, off-season programming for some of our pro guys that just, just started their off-seasons. And we were obviously talking uh, about some, some issues. And Eric brought up a really good question that I think is probably a common question for a lot of people in regard to how we produce force and how this influences um, the demonstration of velocity. So this could be sprinting, but it shows up a lot in throwing, swinging golf club, tennis rackets, a lot of rotational sports where, where we see these really, really high velocities and, and how this is created and how it relates to the, to the model, actually. And so um, what we'll do is we will cut away from the home office straight to the purple room, and you guys will get to see the whiteboard session, which we haven't done in a while. So enjoy. Okay. So you said earlier that max velocity was demonstrated through ER, and I was always under the impression that uh, you know we got to max velocity in IR. So can you explain a little bit more about right. what happens? In, in a nutshell, max velocity is not demonstrated in IR, but the forces that are that are producing the velocity are are created and, and produced in, in IR. All right. So that so we have to look at where the forces produced, and then where is the velocity demonstrated and so we can look at this as a, as a continuum um, of, of, a, of an activity right so um, universal principle expansion to compression to expansion again and so this is why we have extra rotation at either end make sure that's on the camera there on either end of the movement that would lead into where I would experience the greatest compressor strategy which would be internal rotation so so time time is moving in this direction right so at this point in the middle is going to be my maximum force production which we would also call in, in human movement we're going to call that max propulsion right and then my max velocity is actually out here right so so max v is going to be demonstrated in, in ER again. Now, the thing we have to recognize, though, is especially when we're talking about high-speed movements, so like baseball pitchers can throw a baseball at 8,000 degrees per second. The arm's moving at 8,000 degrees per second. It's fastest movement that we can, we can actually create. But to, to do that, I have to have a singular moment in time where this, this maximum force is produced. Because if I extend this out in, in, in either direction, I actually slow down. So I dampen the, the, the strategy. So I, if I extend the, the duration that I produce force too long, right, I actually slow down. I won't be able to hit my, my maximum external rotation where I will demonstrate maximum velocity. Right? So this is, this is how we actually figure out how strong somebody needs to be. Right? I want to maximize this to the nth degree as long as I don't steal the end range of external rotation where max velocity would, would be demonstrated. So this is where, it, where I can actually show you the velocity. So if I'm strength training someone, 
right? Which I know for force production is an IR activity, right? So if I get so good at that, that I have to actually start giving up external rotation. Now my max velocity is here, and now I have a deficit in the maximum velocity that I can produce. And so I get stronger and stronger and stronger, and max velocity starts to trickle back slowly, slowly, slowly. So I'm actually stealing my ability to demonstrate velocity, therefore max velocity goes down, even though my maximum force went up. Now, here's the really cool thing. If I have somebody that has a low force production and a ton of ER, I might be able to strength train him aggressively and still produce maximum velocity. That's a really cool situation to have, but I think it's more rare, um, especially in um, when we think about like baseball, tennis, etc., because they've already got a ton of velocity. It's like they're already doing this, right? And so then we have to be very, very careful about how much internal rotation max propulsive strategy that we're, that we're adding through programming because what I don't want to do is, is I don't want this to trickle back. I want to maintain maximum ER so I can demonstrate the velocity. So it doesn't matter whether we're talking, I mean, take anything. This would be like a martial arts kick or a punch. It's the same concept. It's like, it's like strength training doesn't steal anything until it does, right? So if I need to throw you know, a straight right hand as a boxer or, or a martial artist, I want to be able to demonstrate my ER because that's where the velocity of the punch comes from. But I'm producing the maximum force centrally and then expressing it in external rotation. So you see that, it, that it's, it's IR produces the force, ER allows it to be demonstrated at its peak. Does that make sense? Yeah. There you go. So just a quick reminder that if you have any questions, go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. I will see all of you tomorrow. Good morning. Happy Tuesday. I have neural coffee in hand and it is perfect. I'm in a great mood. I got to talk to somebody yesterday that I haven't talked to in, in what seems like forever. Um, picked up right where we left off. It was a great conversation. So I'm thrilled you know who you are. I was thrilled to see you and I'm looking forward to the next call. We are gonna make sure that we follow up. So if you've got a friend that you haven't talked to in a while and that you miss and you, you just haven't talked to him, go ahead and give him a call. Man, that was fun. Anyway, let's dig into Tuesday's Q&A. We gotta get rolling here. This one comes from Brian. And Brian says, would one always want to try to bias more mid forefoot and big toe loading versus outer heel loading during the entire range of motion during a split squat if the goal is to promote improved hip and pelvic external rotation? And then he follows up with a second, would we always want to use an ipsilateral load as well to achieve the same goal? So Brian, this is a really good question because um, we're going to be talking about, about biases, which you, you know that I am I'm a big, big fan of. But let's go through... Um, some of the foot mechanics stuff just as a quickie review and then we'll kind of show why we probably want to come up with a little bit different strategy than, than, than what you're offering okay so if we look at the foot okay remember we got our, our three rockers as, as is commonly described so we've got a heel rocker and that gets us from from ground contact to this early position we've got ankle rocker which takes us from 
this E-yard position to I-yard position, so the arch comes down. And then we've got our late propulsive strategy, which is the toe rocker, which brings us back to this E-yard position. Okay, so we go E-R, I-R, E-R, as is commonly found in almost every motion that, that we talk about. Now, so what you brought up was cueing lateral heel contact throughout the split squat. And, and I understand where you're going with this, but there's a couple things that we have to understand about these foot mechanics as we come into this early propulsive strategy. So we've got, we've got tibial ER, we've got traditionally a supinated foot, so we've got ER through the system. We've got first and fifth met heads down, and we've got a, a calcaneus on the ground in this, this early position. <clears throat> One of the things we want to understand is that the, the deep posterior compartment of the calf, so the Tom, Dick, and Harry, so we've got tibialis posterior, we've got flexor halicis longus, and then we've got um, flexor digitorum longus posteriorly comes down around the medial ankle. So that muscle, that group of muscles is going to be concentrically oriented, but it's also going to be using an, an overcoming strategy at heel contact, but then this becomes a yielding strategy as the foot as the foot comes down to the ground the reason that we want a yielding strategy is because we want to distribute load load through the tissue so we have to create a yielding strategy so we have energy storage for the energy release and so the yielding strategy is going to be through through the the bone um, through the connective tissues and, and through the musculature itself where the the connective tissues lie and if we don't have that then something's going to have to sort of take up the slack. So if I cue lateral heel throughout, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna, I'm gonna promote a strategy that maintains a concentric overcoming action throughout the excursion of the exercise. And maybe there's an, a circumstance that you might want that, but under most circumstances, we don't want that. So here's where that shows up in the real world. When you get your runner that comes in with a posterior tibial stress syndrome or shin splints or whatever you wanna call it, they're typically using a concentric overcoming strategy as they run. And so the bone then becomes the, the only source where we're getting any significant yielding strategy. And so that's why you get tibial stress. This is what the end game is your, your tibial stress fractures. And so what we wanna do is we wanna teach people to distribute those loads for energy storage and release in a much more efficient manner. So Brian, what I would do is I would take your little heel wedge or something like that and I would be working the front foot in this heels elevated position because what this does, it's gonna bias us towards that early propulsive strategy um, without altering the, the, the foot mechanics. And so we can still get our concentric yielding strategy. We're just biasing ourselves back towards that, that external rotation element of the, of the full propulsive um, excursion. Um, so now let's move to the pelvis. Let's talk about the pelvis orientation because we can create that bias as well. And so I'm gonna hold the pelvis in this orientation so you can, so you can kind of see this. So uh, real quick, so remember early phase ER uh, bias, middle phase IR bias. So when we're talking about a split squat, we're moving from, we're moving through rather ER to IR and then back, back to ER. And if we're talking about the, the lead foot, um, so what we can do though, is we can bias this lead foot towards more external rotation, more internal rotation. We're gonna go ER to IR under every circumstance. But again, we can create a little bit of a bias. And so what I can do is I can position, I can position the ilium and the sacrum in a little bit more of a bias. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna create this yielding strategy 
at, at the, the base of the, of the sacrum here, and I'm gonna be ERing this ilium. And so, so what this would look like would be to project the, the knee forward in the, in the split squat. So before I even lower myself into the split squat, I'm gonna create a stronger bias towards ER. And then as I descend, I'm gonna get less IR as I go down through that, that middle range excursion towards what we would consider 90 degrees of, of hip flexion. So right away I get to bias it. If I wanted to do the opposite, what I would do is I would shift backwards and I would create a little bit more of a, of a bias towards internal rotation. And then as I go down into that excursion, I get more internal rotation as I approach 90 degrees of hip flexion. So this is just your typical hip shifting kind of a bias that you would be using. But the cool thing about this is the load position now that you mentioned is also an influence. So what I can do is I can take the contralateral loading and I can, I can bias it towards internal rotation. So I create those same hip mechanics that I just showed you to bias towards internal rotation to lower myself into the split squat. If I use the ipsilateral load, I create the hip bias towards external rotation. Now here's the, here's the question mark. It's like, what are you trying to achieve? Are you trying to improve my ability to maintain external rotation? So under those circumstances, I create the hip mechanics that are biased towards external rotation, and I use the ipsilateral load. It makes it easier to acquire those, those range of motion mechanics. However, at some point in time, what I may wanna do is challenge that and actually produce force into external rotation under those circumstances, I'll bias it towards the internal rotation mechanics. So I have to push myself up and out of those internal rotation mechanics to create more external rotation. So Brian, this is a great question. Very, very useful. Um, just keep in mind that, that um, all we're doing is creating biases. Internal and external rotation are superimposed. And so again, it's like how we start is gonna influence how we move through that middle excursion and then how we end. Thanks again, Brian, for the question. If you have any more questions, go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com, and I will see you guys tomorrow. Good morning, happy Wednesday. I have neural coffee in hand and it is perfect as usual. So today is Wednesday, and I think you all know what that means. It means that tomorrow morning, 6 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, Coffee and Coaches Conference call. The last few have been, been pretty awesome, actually. We've had a lot of fun. We get a lot of new people on, and from all over the place, too. It's been pretty wild and crazy. So please join us, 6 a.m. Do you have to drink coffee? It would be a good thing for you, but you don't have to drink coffee. We have tea drinkers, we have water drinkers. And if you can't get the videos to me, that's okay too. Just go to my professional Facebook page. The link will be there somewhere between 5.30 and 6 a.m. And click the link and join us. Okay. We got a really, really neat little, little question. Um, that's uh, something we don't talk about a whole lot, but I think it's gonna be very, very useful. And it's, we're gonna describe it in a certain circumstance, but it applies to a lot of different situations, not just the one that we're gonna talk about. So this is from Tom. And, Tom says, is there a connection between anterior pelvic tilt, sacral nutation, and pelvic floor behavior? I have noticed that a lot of my clients who are mothers that are dealing with incontinence present with this postural bias. What are your thoughts around this? So Tom, this is a really good question, but let's, let's, let's expand this a little bit. It's not just moms. Um, it's not just females. We got males that, that deal with these things too. And so um, we can apply this 
um, in, a, in a broad scope because the presentations that we're going to talk about are actually very, very common. Um, but we will sort of bias our discussion um, towards towards the, the, the mom issues and, and some incontinence things as we describe the behavior of this, this pelvic, pelvic outlet and the musculature. So Tom, you mentioned a very specific presentation. When you, as soon as you said sacral nutation, we're gonna be starting from a, a wide ISA archetype bias. So let me grab the pelvis here and we'll kind of talk through that a little bit real quick. So if my sacrum is nutated, then I know I'm gonna be in that orientation. This biases me to an anaverted hip socket. It biases me towards an IR innominate. Uh, and, and then from a pelvic, uh, Outlet standpoint, I'm going to have a concentric orientation of this anterior outlet, and because of the sacral position, I'm going to have a bias towards an eccentric orientation of this posterior outlet. Um, so that's where our starting position is. Now, let's superimpose a pregnancy on top of this, and so we have downward pressure, we have an anterior expansion uh, of the abdomen, and so then what we're going to end up with is we're going to actually change the the axis of the of the pelvis. So the pelvic axis. Um, enters the, the, the pelvis at an angle and usually goes straight down. But under these circumstances, because of the orientation of the sacrum, we're going to have a, a reorientation of the, uh, of the pelvic axis. And so what that's going to do, it's going to promote more of this posterior expansion. We've got a posterior compression um, in, the, in the superior aspect near the, near the base of the sacrum that's going to be pushing us forward. And we're just going to kind of keep going, 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 going. So, so right away, we start to think about Okay, what kind of measures are we going to be looking at with these with these folks? And and so with the anterior orientation, you're going to see this loss of external rotation. Now, we also have to think about uh, a progressive um, element of, of, of strategies here because we've got a change in the center of gravity. And we're talking about the, the pregnancy factor here a lot. So I have, I have an anterior expansion that's going to push me forward. i got to push myself back. So chances are you're going to get this anterior compression as well under most circumstances, right? And so now I've got a pelvis that's getting, getting compressed anterior to posterior. So what happens is I'm going to lose the diameter of this anterior uh, posterior uh, uh, space and I'm going to actually widen it side to side. So, so if I took a hoop and I squeeze the hoop, I get, I get wider um, away from the compression, I get narrower towards the compression. So that's the kind of situation that we're talking about. Now, that's all well and good. So under that circumstance, we've still got this, this eccentric orientation posteriorly, we've got concentric orientation anteriorly, and until we reach a, a certain position, we probably don't really have any incontinence problems. But I think there's two scenarios that we have to consider under these circumstances where we will start to see the incontinence problems. And so what I want you to think about here, Tom, is that if I keep pushing this back, pushing this back, pushing this back, the, the, the pelvic outlet musculature is getting more and more lengthened and it might lengthen to the point where it can no longer produce its optimal level of force. So at that point in time, as that sacrum goes farther and farther forward, I'm going to now lose my, my control of urine flow at that point. Okay, so this is more of what I would look at as a passive insufficiency kind of a representation. So I'm moving the two ends of the muscle farther and farther apart and I lose my ability to, to produce optimum force. That's scenario one. Scenario two is um, 
if I get this posterior lower compressive strategy, again, this is a center of gravity control issue. So if this keeps going forward, 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 I'm gonna eventually have to compress this down. And so I'm gonna compress down here. And so I'm actually gonna see a bend in the sacrum, right? And I, I got an MRI right here. Hopefully it's right here, somewhere there, that shows how this sacrum will bend under. So under normal circumstances, I'm gonna see this, this nice normal shaped sacrum with, with my eccentric orientation. But if I get the concert orientation posterior lower, it's gonna bend the sacrum underneath. Now, if I bend the sacrum farther, 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 and this space in the outlet gets narrower and narrower and narrower, I'm gonna have the opposing strategy. So this is gonna be more like an active insufficiency where I bring the, the two ends of the muscle closer and closer together. And once again, I can't produce optimum force. And this is where I'm gonna have the, the urine control problems, okay? So now we gotta talk about what are we gonna do about this? And so there's a couple of things um, that we wanna think about first and foremost. So what are gonna be our KPIs? What are our key performance indicators? So this is gonna be internal and external rotation of the hip. Um, it's going to let us know when we recapture the external rotation that we've got the pelvis reoriented. When we capture the internal rotation, then you think you've got an effective um, anterior outlet musculature that's allowing the, the normal uh, compressive strategy, exhalation strategy, and shape of the, of the pelvis. So to do this, some of the things that we might need to rely on depending on who we're dealing with. So you take your old school SI belt, and they might have to wear that a little bit. And then we can use this to actually help us reshape the pelvis, right? So if I have a pelvis that's kind of smushed front to back and it gets a little bit wider, if I put pressure through the, the uh, ilium, then I can start to reshape the pelvis and get some rounding back there, okay? Um, and that's under certain circumstances. And again, especially with these women that have had multiple pregnancies, the, the ilium will open because of the downward pressure, it'll open kind of like a, like a flower that's, that's blooming. And until we can bring that, that shape back into a more circular representation, they're not gonna get good muscular control the way, the way we want to. Um, another thing that you can do, and this is kind of off the beam path too, is that uh, old school foam rolling. Take your foam roller and you have them lay on their side and you're just gonna roll that ilium across the, the foam roller as such, and that's gonna start to promote some of this rounding and, and shape change as well, right? So this then becomes some of your sideline activities, some of your rolling activities, um, pr progressing into like maybe an arm bar series if you take them back into the gym, but you might have to do something a little bit more rehabish to promote this, this pelvic shape change that you need. We work in split stance in sideline. That's also another great way to start to, to, to reshape the pelvis. Once you recapture the hip IR, then you can move to things like half kneeling. You can start box squatting. And one of my favorite ways to, to um, restore um, the, the pelvic outlet behaviors and then your good old fashioned Camperini deadlift once you get that IR back, because that would be indicative of, like I said, of a, of a more normal behavior of that pelvic outlet. Once you recapture all this stuff, this is gonna be uh, somebody that you're gonna re-educate in their, their hinging activities to help maintain this, this strategy. And we wanna try to try to optimize that. So keep monitoring your hip ERs and IRs to make sure that you're not creating 
the anterior orientation. So again, your loss of ER is gonna be indicative of that. So Tom, I hope this is helpful. Great question, very useful for a lot of people. Um, I'm gonna confirm some of this stuff with my, my pelvic floor specialist, um, Dr. Dr. Sarah. I did not stutter, she's got two doctorates. And so um, if she's in conflict with me, then maybe we'll do a little update on this one. So thanks again, Tom. Everybody have a great day. I'll see you at 6 a.m. tomorrow. Have a great Happy Thursday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and it is perfect. For muscles, uh, there's no expansion strategies just want to make sure. It's only compression, correct. For what? Uh, for muscles, it's only compression by the way they work, just with sarcomere shortening. If they're shortening? Yeah. In general, it would be, be towards compression. So, okay, so here's a little dirty secret. At the two ends of the extreme, it's compression on both ends. Um, so, when, when, a, when a muscle contracts, okay, so just use your biceps as an example, okay? So if I bend my elbow, I contract my, my biceps, right? And it compresses and it gets firm, it gets small, it gets squeezed into that space, right? And then as I extend my elbow, it expands, right? And, and so it goes from the compressed state to its expanded state, but if I take it to the extreme stretch, it recompresses. So, but, but it's a different shape of compression that I had here. So this is compressed short and wide, right? Because I got big monster pythons for biceps. See, that's a joke. Grace got it. Um, and then at this end, it's elongated. So it compresses long ways and it gets a little bit narrower and tubular. So there's compression at both ends. And this is how you produce tension, right? That's okay. why you feel a stretch at the end, right? Um, so, so the muscle itself, the muscle itself um, compresses and expands, but when you're, when you're shortening, so if I'm moving towards concentric orientation of any kind, you're gonna move towards a compressive strategy. The question mark is, is where did you start? Okay, so if I started it at the very end range, right, there might be a, 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 a relative, relative um, expansion as I alleviate that end range tension in the east, the maximum eccentric orientation, there might be some, some measure of expansion. But again, in general, you're going to move towards compression. So you're correct. If you're doing like abduction or anything. Oh, you're talking about like, like table tests and stuff? Yeah. Like you're measuring something on the table? Uh -huh. Yeah, if their presentation is you know something you've seen before, but the interventions seem like they're potentially pushing it away from where you want it to go. Um, you mean like I screwed up and I did the wrong thing? Uh, either it's just like an anomaly, or yeah, maybe that too. Most most of the time, it's just me screwing up. Okay. Right. Everything that we do, everything that we do is based on a probability. So, so I'm, I'm, I measure my chessboard. I, I have my three-dimensional representation of this human and I, and I have to, to make the best judgment on my understanding, okay? And then, so I intervene and then I retest. So I have no judgment in the whole process. It's just like, here's what, here's what I thought I had. 
here's what I did because of that. Here's what happened. And then I just do next. Right. Okay. It would be rare because I have checks and balances within my, within my process that, that helped me to confirm what I think is going on. Right. But I, I, I missed the target. You know, there's a percentage where I, where I missed the target because it's all based on probability. Well, it's like, um, to, to quote Annie Duke, we're playing poker, right? So, you know, 76% of the time I'm correct. 24%, maybe not under certain circumstances. Maybe sometimes I hit it out of the park and I'm 92% correct. Um, the, the point is, is you've got to be prolific with everything that you do. That's how you get good because, so Dolly Parton wrote 3000 songs, but, but not very many of them were, were great songs, but she wrote a lot of them. And then that's how you get great. So the number of failures that you need to get really, really good is a, is a very, very high number. And you, but you got to do it in a safe atmosphere. That's why I'm such a proponent of mentorship and apprenticeship models, especially for what we do. It is the only way, in fact, it's the only way to learn how to do this, is to do it under the, under the direction of someone else first. Um, because that's how you're going to get your reps in a safe manner. Okay? okay. So if you're just done with school, you best be finding somebody that you can follow and work under and do it for free if you have to. So you get your reps. So you get your exposure. So you learn to see things. There is no book that's going to teach you what we talk about on these calls. This is all experiential. That's why it's so important. That's why internships are important. That's why apprenticeships are important. That's why having a mentor is so important because you need the guidance because you can't, um, you can learn anything, but the stuff that we do cannot be taught. It has to be experienced. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Uh, an ISA question. Um, Never heard and, of it. And I've seen, uh, I've seen this presentation actually a couple of times this week. Um, so, with testing, it presents as narrow, but huh? my hands are so far apart from each other, right? And and they all have different histories. Like there's a couple of them that had like past pregnancies that were an issue, and there's others that like don't have that easy of an explanation as to why you can explain what's going on. But yeah, um, and I actually cheated and ran this by Campo because I did have a question, but um, like I was trying to decipher like whether I trust my hands or if kind of whatever whatever change anatomically is going to change our expectation of what's going on at the axial skeleton mm -hmm. so when you when you put them at that transition point between the inhale and the exhale with the arm position um that's that's where the 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 decision making capability is uh, as to whether it's moving or not and how much it moves and so that's the best place to see it. Mm -hmm. And I have no issues with going, I don't know. And then doing something and then just see what happens. Right? Because there's nothing, there's nothing magical about, about the ISA other than the fact that it's going to lead you in a direction. And then you still have to follow the same process. You still have to say, I think this is this. Here's my intervention. Here's what happened. And then you, what's going to happen over time, like, and again, you, you've been doing this for a while now, but what's going to happen over time is your judgment gets better and better and better. So when you see these kind of iffy ones, so somebody asked me, they go, hey, I was 110 and now I'm 90. Like, I don't really care about the number, right? 
and they, and they said, how is that possible that I could do that? It's like, because you probably started, you know, really close to 90 as a human being. And then your training takes you, it flattens you out and it makes it look a little bit wider. And then you sort of overcame that. And now it's kind of back to where you started, right? Because there are people that are in the middle range. Yeah, I think so, you, you know how things happen, happen in like threes and like this happened multiple times. Oh, like, like you had like, oh yeah. yeah. And yeah. you're starting to question yourself is like, is it just the way that I'm administering this, which I don't think it is because, well. But that's a really good question to ask. Yeah. That's a powerful question to ask because it allows you to examine your own bias. And what I do is I basically go back like the next session. I basically tell them, I go, yeah, we're going to throw that one out. Um, but but like I'm pretty confident in the way that that I'm measuring it to at least get consistently like the same answer. It's just a matter of I'm not really sure where to go with that answer in terms of like trying to come up with my visual representation of what's going on underneath. Like I try and like paint that picture in my mind of like what's going on under this and what how could this actually like feed into my assessment to to guide me or is this just like I'm I'm just doing this because I'm doing this. Right. I I, th I think that that the answer is is that if there's a question mark in your head, you flip a coin in your in your head, you know, and you go that's closer to this or that's closer to that. And that's just your, it's just a starting point. Sure. Literally, it's just a starting point. It's like, I met, I measure it once. I don't remeasure, right? Because it doesn't matter. Right? I just want it to move more than anything sure. else. I want it to move. And then it's represented in the extremity motion. You know, because it, it's just a baseline structure. It's not an answer to every question. I think the novelty gets people excited and they say, what about this one? What about this one? What about this one? It's like, no, just measure, do, and process. The bones in your joints don't touch. Well, they can, but usually bad things happen. Good morning, happy Friday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and it is perfect. All right, it's Friday. Looking forward to a solid weekend, but we got to dig into this Q&A. It's going to be a deep one. There's there's multiple parts here that we got to try to cover in a very short period of time. Um, kind of a perfect storm of questions. Yesterday we had the coffee and coaches conference call at 6 a.m. on Thursday. Um, hope you join us next time. Um, where uh, the, the question was, why don't bones touch? We talked about one mechanism. And then Johnny came through the, the askbillhartman at gmail.com with a question that is along the same lines and will allow us to dig a little bit deeper into the detail. And so Johnny says, hey, Bill. Hey, Johnny. Since bones don't actually touch, I'm curious about an explanation via your model as to why we get things like osteoarthritis. Also, why is it more common in the medial compartment of the knee rather than the lateral? Excellent question, Johnny. And so let's dig into this. Now, let me let me preface this. I can't cover everything possible in regards to your arthritic situation, but we're going to cover a lot of the mechanical aspects that I think are in play and are important to me in regard to how I perceive these things through my model. First things first, Johnny, we're going to invert your problem a little bit. We're going to say, why is it bad if bones touch? So so the bones touching thing um, probably comes from the using dead guy anatomy as a model. So, so dead guys actually do have levers. 
And so to have a lever, you have to have a fulcrum. And so the bones touch on dead guys because they're dry. And so they look like levers. And so then in school, they teach you that, oh, your joints move just like levers. The reality is in a living, breathing human, and the fact that we're full of water and we've got synovial fluid in our joints, we don't have fulcrums. If we had a fulcrum, there would be a lot of pressure and heat that would be released every time we moved and we would destroy our joints in no time. And so we don't want fulcrums um, in our joints. In fact, if you do have a fulcrum in your joint, you're probably talking to the orthopedic surgeon right now. So now what we have to understand is that we have to have mechanisms that keep these bones from touching. So let's break these down. Now, let's start with structure. So you're 99% water, 1% stuff. Your 1% stuff is almost all the same and it's all viscoelastic tissue. And so I have a representation of viscoelastic tissues in my silly putty. And so this is viscoelastic, so it's gonna behave very similarly. And so viscoelastic tissue will behave differently depending on the forces that are applied. So if I stretch this gently, I get this nice elongation of, of my silly putty, but if I pull it really hard and fast, it snaps off clean. So what that means is, is the tissue behavior changes based on the forces that are applied. And so when I apply a high rate of force, I get very, very stiff viscoelastic tissue. So this is the overcoming action that I always talk about when we're talking about concentric overcoming or eccentric overcoming behaviors. So I have an increased stiffness of tissue. So if I had an orientation of, of fibers as such that if I loaded them at, the, at, a, at a higher rate, I can make them really, really stiff. And so we actually have that. So when we look at the fascia that surrounds everything, so we talk about the, the periosteum, we talk about the, the fascia that surrounds all of the ligamentous structure and all the structures around the knee. So the knee is very busy when you look at it from a connective tissue standpoint. And so what happens is when we load that, that joint, those viscoelastic tissues behave very, very similar to my silly putty. They get very, very stiff and they create this rigidity around the knee and that actually pushes the bones apart. So now we have a mechanical uh, protective mechanism that helps us keep those, those bones apart. So that's very, very useful. Now, it's a little counterintuitive too, by the way, when you think about it, it's like you think of these are like tension elements and stretchy stuff, they become very, very stiff. So keep that in mind. Now. Let's go to inside the knee joint. So the, the knee is filled with water, basically. It's synovial fluid, so it's water with some protein stuff that floats around. Well, water is this really, really unique substance um, that, that is cooler than you can imagine. And so water behaves differently, just like our viscoelastic tissues behave differently under different forces, water behaves differently depending on what substance it's next to. And so we have hyaline cartilage that lines the, uh, the, the joint, um, if we talk about the knee, so at the end of the femur, we have hyaline cartilage. On the tibia, we have hyaline cartilage. And so when the water's right next to it, it promotes the separation of the water into positively and negatively charged water. So the negative charged water is right along the hyaline cartilage on both sides, and then the positively charged water's going right through the middle of the knee. So if you took the north end of, of, of two magnets and try to push them together, you could feel the repulsion between, between the two magnets. So this positively charged water is constantly trying to push its positive charges apart. And so now we've got this electromagnetic force that is now pushing the knee apart. So now we have a, an electromagnetic effect to create uh, this, this separation. And so there's a cool study from 1980 from Teriyama, it's Japanese. Um, and they took fresh cadaver knees with intact synovial joints and they applied downward pressure through the joint, about 220 pounds into the knee joint, and they compressed, and then it hit sort of like a, like a maximum 
uh, position, but the bones didn't touch. So they got really, really close together, but they did not touch. And so right away, even, even in, in a, a, a joint that's not living, but it's intact, and, and um, we have all the structures available to us, it still behaves similarly. So it keeps the, the bones apart. So again, very, very strong electromagnetic effect. How do we know? Well, in the same study, they took a hip joint that, that had uh, arthritis. So, so on the weight-bearing surface, there was no cartilage. They did the same compressive uh, test and they got the subchondral bones to touch because there was no cartilage in the way to create this electromagnetic effect and keep the, keep the joints apart. So kind of a big deal. Now, synovial fluid has little protein things that are floating around. Proteins are negatively charged and they would, they would attract positive charges just like two magnets. So you take the north end of one magnet, the south end, and they snap right together. And so, so we have these proteins that are surrounded by positive charge. We get more positive charges. And so now the synovial fluid itself helps us create that, that middle uh, positively charged area that keeps the, the joints apart. <clears throat> So if, for those of you that have had arthritic uh, changes and, and, and some, some wonkiness in your knees, if you will, that have had the Synvisc injections, what they're doing is they're injecting you with water that has protein in it and it helps restore some of that mechanism, which is why you might feel better for a little while until, until the effect is no longer um, intact. So we have structure, we have mechanics, we have electromagnetic forces that keep the bones apart. So if they keep the bones apart, how on earth do we get arthritic changes? So now we gotta look at the synovial joint a little bit closer. So when we look at the structure of the synovial joint, on either end, as long as we maintain our hyaline cartilage intact, it appears that we can keep our, our, our bones apart. So we have to look at how, what affects that hyaline cartilage. And we say, oh, pressure, tension, blah, 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 blah. But the reality is, is hyaline cartilage gets its nutrition from the bony side. So you'll see the little little arteries that I drew on my picture here. And that, that blood supply is what gives the nutrition to the cartilage. So it diffuses um, from, from the, uh, the bloodstream towards the hyaline cartilage on the bony side. Well, if I put enough pressure and tension on those bones, those trabecula will compress. If the trabecula at the ends of the bone compress enough, I restrict the blood flow to the, to the ends of the joint. Now, these trabecula can also fracture. So, you know, you played 15 years in the NBA, you're probably gonna get some, some, some fracturing of those trabecula. They're kind of like shock absorbers. If you've ever driven on the, uh, on the interstate and you see the, the trash barrels um, right, right before, below the, the, the uh, abutment of the overpass. And what those are, they're, they're trash barrels filled with water. So if you drive off the road and you hit them, it'll slow you down so you don't slam right into the bridge. Trabecula kind of the same way. They're kind of like shock absorbers. So they're filled with, with space and water. And so when you land, they compress, but they can fracture over time and then you compress. And then the subchondral bone actually gets denser. And so you'll see this in arthritic research. Well, they'll, they'll see the, the precipitating uh, uh, changes of the uh, subchondral bone gets denser and denser and denser. Well, that's gonna reduce our blood flow to the, to the cartilage. The cartilage will slowly wear away and it gets thinner and thinner and thinner. So now we're losing our electromagnetic effect. So now we can't keep the joint farther and farther apart. And so now we do get compressive strategies um, that will actually become destructive. And so again, on that end, that's pretty much how I see a lot of these arthritic changes occurring because it's a pressure related phenomenon. It's a blood flow re related phenomenon. It's a nutrition to the cartilage, by the way, 
discs do the same thing. Okay, don't tell anybody. Now, how do we get medial compartment versus lateral compartment? So now we gotta think about our propulsive strategies. So our propulsive strategies are what we apply into the ground. And so propulsion in, in and of itself is biased towards internal rotation. So we have to apply pressure to the ground. So remember when, when we evolved, we were, we were externally rotated, we were swimmers, we came up on land, we had to learn how to internally rotate and press into the ground. And so Johnny, when we talk about the internal rotation, I gotta internally rotate my femur, right? Because I gotta drive down into the ground through internal rotation. So uh, more often than not, I'm gonna be applying a little bit more force towards that medial compartment as I internally rotate the femur to push into the ground. And so, if we talk about the pressure mechanism that we just talked about in regard to the, the arthritis, that's why we would probably see the bias towards more medial compartment problems than lateral compartment problems because we're applying forces into the ground. We have to just because of gravity. Okay, so I'm gonna breathe for a second. That's a lot to cover. Hope you guys have some questions. I'd be happy to answer those to the best of my ability, but that's kind of what we're talking about, bones not touching and, and how we develop arthritis in a nutshell. I hope it was useful for you. Have a great weekend and I will see you next week.